Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. tell you a little bit about Mary Kennedy of Baptist Mills in Bristol, one of an elite group of people who landed at Sydney Cove in Australia in January 1788. They numbered approximately 1,373 people, consisting of convicts, male and female, a few children, officials, marines and their wives and seamen. The voyage is known to history as the First Fleet. Mary was born on October the 27th, 1764, the daughter of James Stone and his wife, Anna. Mary's father, James, was a collier and a convert of John Senek, a young evangelist who had been drawn to Kingswood, which was then part of Bitten, by the missionary work of George Whitfield and John Wesley. Their novel idea of preaching in the open fields to the ignorant colliers, led to the Great Stir of 1739, which brought Methodism to Kingswood and then to the world. Senek's devotion to Wesley palled, and then he fell out with his mentor. He then gathered his own followers around him. James Stone became a member of the Society in 1743 at George Whitfield's schoolroom in Kingswood. On the 3rd of April the same year, James married Senek's sister, Anna in Yate. James and Anna had 11 children, including Anna Maria, Sarah, George, James and Rosina. Mary was probably the youngest surviving child. Sadly, she was not quite three years old when her mother died aged 45. James had a second wife, Lucy, and several more children were born. There are no details of Mary's early years at Baptist Mills that have survived, but it seems likely she grew up quietly within her devout family group. Mary's husband, John Kennedy, may have been born in Bristol at St. Michael's on the Mount in 1752, but his military record shows that he was a Marine belonging to Captain John Shear's company, the 58th. 
at Plymouth. The Marines were a division of the Royal Navy, a military force aboard ship required to support naval operations, take part in raiding parties ashore in foreign parts, but primarily there to maintain discipline. Given that a number of the crew were likely to have been pressed into service, mutiny was always a possibility. The uniform of a marine at this time was indistinguishable from a soldier of foot regiment, and John would have worn the red coat with white facings, and his usual headgear would have been a tricorn hat. For shipboard duties, he put aside his red coat, which would become easily stained, and wore slops, similar to those worn by sailors, though full uniform was required for guard duty when on watch, and also when the dreaded order was given, fall in all hands to witness punishment. The 18th century saw a rise in the number of crimes punishable by hanging to about 200. Some of these, such as treason or murder, were serious crimes, but others were minor offences. For example, the death sentence could be passed for picking pockets, shoplifting or stealing food. Though the ultimate punishment might be carried out, in many cases the sentence was commuted to transportation beyond the seas for a length of time which varied between seven years and life. There was no regular prison service. Local jails and lockups existed only as holding pens until a trial could be convened at the quarter sessions or assizes and guilt or innocence was established. If the verdict was guilty, the sentence could be carried out with a journey either to the scaffold or to the nearest port. Before the loss of the American colonies, transportation had been to the plantations of Virginia and Carolina, but when the war with America was finally lost in 1783, this was no longer an option. An alternative destination, Africa, had been tried, with disastrous results. Almost everybody died of disease. The continent of Australia, discovered by Captain Cook in 1770, although so far away to be outside the comprehension of most people, was the only possible alternative. Criminals still continued to be sentenced to transportation, and in the interim were kept, sometimes for years, aboard prison hulks, ships moored in harbours of major port cities. Whilst they languished awaiting their fate, a fleet of 11 ships were commissioned and fitted out for the voyage. The convicts, male and female, were to be the workforce used to build the first settlement in this new part of the empire and to form a white underclass. Word of the week. And this week, I have pleasure in giving you the word... Gandamuna. This is an Elizabethan word for a man who flirted with other women while his wife recovered from childbirth, or a husband who strays during the time of the month his wife is unavailable to him. The fleet was mustered, and over the coming months was kitted out for the voyage. When it dawned on the convicts that they would not be going to America, but to this unknown land from which no one was likely to return, 
There were two major mutinies, and some prisoners even requested that they should be hanged and get it over with. The only way Mary, now Mrs Kennedy, could join her husband at sea was to draw lots and be amongst those lucky wives chosen to accompany their husbands. And so that is how she started her great adventure with John, which defines her life, a voyage to Australia. On the 13th of May 1787, the fleet sailed out of Portsmouth. Their first ship was the Prince of Wales, one of the newest vessels of the fleet, with 49 female convicts and only one solitary male, George Youngson, who accompanied his sister Elizabeth. A large majority of those marine wives who had been allowed to travel with their husbands were accommodated on this ship. It seems likely that it was considered a soft berth. Mary carried with her a small hymnal which she had inherited from her maternal grandmother, Anne Senek. It contains several annotations, but the only one written by Mary herself reads... 1787, the 24th and 25th of June. I dreamed that my father was dead, which made me very uneasy. Mary Kennedy. By the time Mary had penned these words, the convoy of ships had left Santa Cruz on Tenerife and were crossing the Atlantic, bound for Rio de Janeiro. If you're thinking it would have been a bit of a pleasure cruise for the wives of the sailors, then you'd be wrong, because they wouldn't have been allowed to just sit around doing nothing during the voyage. Soldiers' wives, among those few who were chosen to go on campaign, were put to use in a variety of tasks, like sewing, mending, cooking and tending the sick. The Prince of Wales was lucky enough to have a chronicler aboard, another marine sergeant called James Scott, who kept a diary of the voyage. On the 24th of June, the day before Mary's uneasy dream, he reports that two marines, privates, Robert Ryan and Arthur Duggerty, were charged with insolence and disobeying orders on HMS Sirius, the flagship. Doherty was acquitted, but Ryan was sentenced to 300 lashes, though he collapsed after 175. The following day, the 25th, he was sent aboard the Prince of Wales, presumably to recuperate, probably nursed by the marine wives. Mary must have been aware of this grim punishment ritual. No wonder she felt uneasy. On the 14th of July, they crossed the equator, when first-timers were subjected to initiation rites involving total immersion in a barrel of water by King Neptune and mermaids, all played by the crew. It was a chance for everybody to dress up, dance and let off steam, though not the convicts. The ceremony could easily degenerate into a free-for-all. According to Scott, the diarist, Sergeant Kennedy went too far. He got thoroughly drunk, and after abusing several people, he... Jumped down the main hatchway upon my wife as she sat at work just down by the ladder, which caused great fright, and likewise hurted her greatly. Sergeant Kennedy spent two weeks in iron leg cuffs, and was reduced to private by court-martial. 
Given the harsh retribution meted out by others, he was let off lightly. If that wasn't enough, the Kennedys were also removed from the soft surroundings and moved to the Alexander, a much harsher environment with all male prisoners and only three other wives. Whereas on the Prince of Wales, Mary had had 14 other women for company. By the 18th century, there were well-established line-crossing rituals in the British Royal Navy. On the voyage by HMS Endeavour to the Pacific in 1768, captained by James Cook, Joseph Banks described how the crew drew up a list of everyone on board, including cats and dogs, and interrogated them as to whether they had crossed the equator. And if they hadn't, they must choose to give up their allowance of wine for four days or undergo a ducking ceremony in which they were ducked three times into the ocean. According to Banks, some of those ducked were grinning and exulting in their hardiness, but others were almost suffocated. The fleet landed in Rio de Janeiro on the 7th of August, where they remained for about a month. The ships were thoroughly cleaned at the time and old clothes burned to get rid of lice and fleas. The diarist Scott's wife, Jane, recovered well enough to go ashore in Rio and on the 29th of August gave birth to a healthy girl, which she named Elizabeth. The Kennedys left Rio for the Cape of Good Hope in the Alexander, the largest transport in the fleet. A former merchant ship, built around 1783, she was a bark with three masts and two decks. The Alexander probably wasn't one of the luckier ships, as there had been 16 deaths aboard from fever due to the foul water in the bilges, even before the ship left Portsmouth. Along with a heavy marine guard and the few wives and children, she carried 30 crew and 195 male convicts, 15 of whom died on the voyage. Between Rio and the Cape, a plot was discovered. Five convicts and several members of the crew allegedly planned to overpower the guards and take command of the ship, intending to depart at the first landfall. Two of them, Philip Farrell and Thomas Griffith, were removed to HMS Sirius for punishment and afterwards to the Prince of Wales, once again presumably to the tender care of the marine wives. But even with all this drama, the fleet landed at Table Bay, Cape Town, on the 13th of October. <laughs> Word on the street. Today, we venture forth to Geoffrey Court in BS15 Bristol. There was a Geoffrey House at Wormley as far back as 1610, and by 1670 the Geoffrey family possessed coal pits in Lord Stafford's Liberty, and was the first family to be involved in mining in Wormley. A Liberty, by the way, was the right to dig for coal in a manorial estate. (laughs) 
After passing Tasmania on the 16th of January, 1788, the commander, Arthur Philip, transferred from his flagship, Sirius, to the tender, and with the three fastest transports under John Shortland in Alexander, sailed ahead as the advance party, being the first ships to reach Botany Bay on the 18th and 19th of January, 1788. On the 22nd of January, Governor Philip sailed north to Port Jackson with a small expedition party. There he chose a sheltered site for anchorage, which he called Sydney Cove. The ship Alexander arrived there on the 26th of January and began to unload her convicts. The first years of the settlement were a living hell. The climate was unfamiliar, the soil poor, most of the seeds brought from England were spoilt, and the convict workforce had little or no agricultural experience because they had lived most of their lives in towns. Commander Arthur Phillips had pleaded with the government to allow farmers to come out with the fleet, but this had fallen on deaf ears. For several years, the colony was on the verge of outright starvation. The Marines, which were sent to keep order, were not really up to the task, with floggings and hangings commonplace among Marines and convicts alike. It has to be said that Commander Arthur Philip proved to be a tough but fair-minded leader. He had stated before leaving, in a new country there will be no slavery, and hence no slaves. He practised what he preached by appointing convicts to positions of responsibility, and officers were not favoured in the distribution of rations. John Kennedy, who had been reinstated as sergeant, was again demoted in April 1788, with his rank restored the following September. His erratic career continued in 1789 when Sergeant Scott was again on hand to record. Sydney Cove, Port Jackson, January 20th, Tuesday. John Kennedy, Sergeant, reduced to private by the sentence of court-martial. Unfortunately, he didn't say what the offence John committed was on this particular occasion. In May 1789, with the food in the colony rapidly running out, the ship Sirius was dispatched to Cape Town for supplies, but returned with less than four months' worth of flour. Therefore, drastic measures were necessary to keep everyone alive. Part of the settlement plan was to start a twin settlement on Norfolk Island across the Pacific, midway between Australia and New Zealand. Sharing out the dwindling supply of food... Governor Phillips ordered 280 of the convicts and marines, among them Mary and John Kennedy, who was still a private, to sail to the island on the ship Sirius, where farming conditions were believed to be favourable. There they were to unload the passengers, stores and equipment. Then the plan was for the ship to continue to Canton to stock up and return to both settlements with much-needed food and supplies. The scheme came to nothing on the 19th of March, 1790, when disaster struck. Sirius foundered on a reef on the island's rocky foreshore and broke apart. Most of the scanty provisions they had brought with them 
and many of their effects were lost. Fortunately, everyone made it ashore, including Mary Kennedy. As her proud father would later write in the hymn book, My daughter Mary Kennedy was cast away in the ship Sirius near Norfolk Island with her husband Mr J Kennedy, Sergeant of the Marines and many others, but through God's gracious providence not drowned. This book was in her box with most of their effects, but recovered. I had it new bound. The colonists were stranded on the island, eking out what food they had managed to salvage by catching mutton birds, poor, remarkably tame creatures, and eating their eggs as well. Also, vegetation they called cabbage trees. Jacob Nagel, an American able seaman, the first fleeter of Sirius, wrote a remarkable journal of his life and adventures. He recorded... On the next Saturday, our last provisions was to be served out. One half barrel of flour. The birds were destroyed, the cabbage tree was likewise all gone, and as for fish, it was very uncertain. Even if we could catch them, it would not supply one quarter of our number. On the 7th of August, 1790, two ships were spied. These were the Surprise and Justinian, which had arrived at Sydney Cove as part of the second fleet. They brought much-needed supplies, but also another thousand mouths to feed. A decision was taken to bring some of the convict women to Norfolk. The castaways rowed out in cutters, but transferring the people from the ships proved hazardous in the heavy surf. Nagel recorded, Six seamen and one woman drowned. Boat and five went into the whirlpool. Two quartermasters was got on shore and buried on the island. What was surprising, those two men, petty officers and good seamen, always dreaded being in a boat. William Hunter, a fellow crew member of Nagel's, saved one woman and her child, holding them in his arms until they got ashore. John and Mary Kennedy left Norfolk Island in November 1791, when the detachment of Marines was taken off. Three of the Marines, John McCarty, Thomas Bishop and William Mitchell, who had fathered children with three convict women on the island, left the service and went back to the island where they rejoined their partners. On the 18th of December, 1791, HMS Gorgon sailed from Port Jackson with samples of animals, birds and plants from New South Wales and taking home the last company of Marine Corps which had accompanied the First Fleet. Among them were John and Mary Kennedy, with more noted companions. The Marine Commander Robert Ross, the astronomer William Dawes, and the diarists Ralph Clark and Watkin Tench. Tench said of their departure, We hailed it with rapture and exhilaration. Now here's an interesting tale about John and Mary Kennedy's journey back to England. At the Cape of Good Hope, HMS Gorgon took on board William Allen, Samuel Broom, Mary Bryant and her daughter Charlotte, Nathaniel Lilly and James Martin. These were the survivors from a party of convicts who, in March 1791, had absconded from New South Wales in Governor Phillips' six-oared cutter. After a voyage lasting 55 days, the group landed in Kupang in West Timor. 
Their epic journey of 5,000 kilometres has been compared with William Bly's similar passage from the bounty community of two years before, which had also ended in Timor. Sadly, the fugitives were apprehended, and Mary lost one of her children and her husband, William Bryant, a survivor of the swift mutiny, who she had met on the prison hulk years before when they both awaited transportation. Mary enjoyed a brief celebrity when her cause was taken up by James Boswell, after which she was forgotten. Then 150 years later, she suddenly resurfaced when a sample of her tea leaves, used to ward off scurvy, were found among Boswell's papers at Yale University. To add to the coincidence, HMS Gorgon also took on board 10 of the mutineers from the bounty. These men had not gone to sea with Fletcher Christian, but had remained on Tahiti where they were arrested by the captain of HMS Pandora. On the way home, the Pandora was wrecked and several of the captives who were kept below decks, heavily ironed, were unable to escape. Of the remaining ten, six were exonerated for the mutiny, though the other four were hanged. As for HMS Gorgon, during the last leg of the journey home, many of the children on board, including Mary Bryant's daughter Charlotte, died of heat and illness. John Kennedy was discharged from the service at Portsmouth in June 1792. Nothing really is known of him after that, though presumably he came back to Bristol with Mary. We know that her proud father had the hymn book rebound in 1794, and he probably talked of her exploits to anybody who would listen. Otherwise, she returned to obscurity, and nothing is known of her until she died on the 10th of June 1797, at the age of 33. She was buried in the Baptist Burying Ground in Bristol. Hey, this is Russ. This is Kyle. This is Michelle. From the Infectious Groove Podcast. Join us every Monday for the most fun you can have with a music podcast. The Infectious Groove Podcast uses a positive and fun approach as we take time every week to share our jammy jams, then dig into a thought-provoking topic discussing all decades and genres of music. You can find the Infectious Groove Podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can head to infectiousgroovepodcast.com to find us there and subscribe. We might have a controversial opinion here or there, but we always have fun with it. Oh, I'm sure I'll say something dumb. Subscribe to the Infectious Groove Podcast, part of the Odd Pods Media Network. A man has complained after going into a seafood restaurant in Bradley Stoke and asking for a lobster tail. Apparently, the waitress smiled sweetly and said, Once upon a time, there was this handsome lobster. in the day facts and so we start with the 18th of february 1229 the sixth crusade when frederick ii holy roman emperor signs a 10-year truce with al Kamil, regaining jerusalem nazareth and bethlehem with neither military engagements nor support from the papacy also on the 18th of Feb, but in 1987, the song Sign of the Times was released by Prince. 
the 19th of February 1836, and King William IV signs letters patent, establishing the province of South Australia. On the 20th of February 1905, the Bristol Art Gallery opened. The gallery had nearly 300,000 visitors in its first three weeks. Also on the 20th February 1943, American movie studio executives agreed to allow the Office of War Information to censor movies. Through radio broadcasts, newspapers, posters, photographs, films and other forms of media, the OWI was the connection between the battlefront and civilian communities. The office also established several overseas branches, which launched a larger-scale information and propaganda campaign abroad. The 21st of February, 1804, the first self-propelling steam locomotive makes its outing at the Pennydarren Ironworks in Wales. And on the 22nd of February, 1797, the last invasion of Britain begins near Fishguard in Wales. The Battle of Fishguard was part of the War of the Coalition. The brief campaign on the 22nd to the 24th of February, is the most recent landing on British soil by a hostile foreign force, and thus is often referred to as the last invasion of mainland Britain. The French general, Lazare Hoche, had devised a three-pronged attack on Britain in support of the Society of United Irishmen. Two forces would land in Britain as a divisionary effort, while the main body would land in Ireland, Adverse weather and ill-discipline halted two of the forces, but the third, aimed at landing in Wales and marching on to Bristol, went ahead. After brief clashes with hastily assembled British forces and the local civilian population, the invading forces' Irish-American commander, Colonel William Tate, was forced into unconditional surrender on the 24th of February. In a related naval action, the British captured two of the expedition's vessels, a frigate and a corvette. And lastly, on the 23rd of February 1958, five-time Argentine Formula One champion Juan Manuel Fangio is kidnapped by rebels involved in the Cuban Revolution on the eve of the Cuban Grand Prix. He was released the following day after the race. And so, I'm afraid, my friends, that's the end of another episode of the Backtracker History Show. And as always, it's only right to thank those people who volunteered their voices to bring this particular story to life. And this week, we have Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio, as well as Sam Roberts, Joe Wilson and Molly Jeffries from St. Stephen's Drama Group, right here in Bristol. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. 
Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. Mm-hmm.